Hey, it's Greg Brady from Toronto Today. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, February the 9th. Five days away from Valentine's Day. Have you shopped already? Dinner reservation? We'll probably cover that a little more later in the week because we were swamped with news today. We're all reacting to Alberta, especially although Saskatchewan and Quebec lifted some restrictions. But Alberta went there. No masks in school next week for 12 and under. 12 and under don't have to wear a mask anywhere. And there's uh, a lot more forward motion. Some feel it's too soon. That's okay. That's You're allowed to have that opinion. We'll drill down and talk about some of the specifics of it. Our Chatterbox uh, segment features Alex Pearson, who's in for Kelly Contrera all week at 9 o'clock, following our show live, and Mike Drolet, global national reporter. He was in Ottawa for the protests over the weekend. Alex was in Toronto checking things out. Stephanie Schwienart as well on the liberal MP who decided he'd had enough and he was going to speak out against some of the restrictions his own federal government that he's part of have set. We don't get a lot of that. We don't get a lot of that. And maybe we need more of it in our political discourse. It's all coming up. We're glad you're with us. Toronto Today begins now. Let me start here this morning. Um, excited to have you in. Uh, and we got a busy, busy show. Wow. So much to talk about last night. I couldn't keep my eyes um, off the television last night. And uh, and it wasn't it wasn't Olympics related. Um, Beijing 22, um, Dave gives you the update there about another medal and this, this weird figure skating controversy that we'll try and keep you posted on throughout the morning. Uh, Canada's men's hockey team play tomorrow. I don't know if there's buzz about that, but all eyes are just on the political scene right now and the potential for the lifting of restrictions. And, uh, the time difference plays into favor because, you know, late afternoon, you might still be running around. Kids are home from school. Getting to the dog walked in uh, decent weather, and all of a sudden Alberta shows up. Alberta does this from time to time. They have like a seven o'clock, eight o'clock Eastern time uh, news chat, little news conference with Jason Kenny, and they did that in the summer too. Remember, in the fall, Jason Kenny apologized and said we got some things wrong here. We kind of went a little too wild, a little too buck wild in the summer, opening things up. They wanted their Calgary Stampede. They wanted summer fairs. They uh, pushed aside uh, masks for a brief period of time in areas of close quarters. Last night was rather the opposite of that. But to me, this is meeting with nothing. Nothing gets universal approval. Nothing does. But uh, Jason Kenney noting last night that they're going to ditch the proof of vaccine program at midnight. Here's something else they're doing. We often thought schools would be the last domino to fall and universities and, and uh, elementary schools and whether whether there's restrictions and kids wearing masks. It was a very strong message geared towards parents and people who have empathy for parents and what they've been through the last two years. And isn't that everybody? I feel like that's everybody. I don't think you need a kid uh, running around, uh, you know, spilling cornflakes all over the place. Uh, staying up late and eating uh, eating icing sugar, you know, not that that's anecdotal from my house. It's not not recently, not in the last couple of weeks, but who hasn't felt for parents? And that was the card to play. We saw a uh, Quebec liberal MP do that, which I'm going to get to in a little bit, say it yesterday as well. I'm going to play you some sound from Jason Kenney, get your reaction to it. But um, this this met with more approval and a hope, I think, that the dam is breaking. That there's been a drip, 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 and the dam is breaking as Omicron's influence subsides in our society. We told you this in late November. We told you 
We're like, look at South Africa right now. It's it's a less severe variant. That isn't deniable. That is that cannot be argued. It transmits like crazy compared to Delta per se. So we knew both those things in late November. And we even said, hold on. It's going to be really rough for the healthcare system in all the provinces, in many U.S. states, certainly in Ontario. It's going to press people like never before. I told you, I've got two people talking to me constantly who work in, in, uh, in, who work with COVID patients in ICUs. They say, Greg, there's two patients now for every, every nurse. It used to be one-on-one in the ICU. That's no good. That is, that is no bueno. That is not going to work. That's not sustainable. Uh, healthcare workers have, have had to isolate. They've had to be out there. There's been a lot of issues. So on uh, Monday of next week, rules that require kids to wear masks in school stop. Kids under 12 don't have to wear masks anywhere starting then. What have we been talking about on the show? I'm sorry. The data isn't there. You're going to have people go, here, let me Google a thing that says, I'm going to type in masks work into my Google machine and send you a link to show... You're going to have a really hard time to find data about 12 and unders. You're going to have a very difficult time talking about spread, especially given that there's been ample time to vaccinate five to 11 year olds. Now you've had weeks to do this now in Toronto specifically. Uh, we had Joe Cressy on talking about it on Monday's show from the board of health and city council, about 55% of parents have done it. If you'd said that's about what I'd expect. And then a wall gets hit. People have had their opportunity. Maybe some people want to wait for real world data. Maybe they'll wait for the summer. Maybe they'll wait and see how the mandates and the passports work. I think that was a huge reason there was a 12 plus uptake here in Ontario was you needed it to go certain places. You want to take your kid to the Jays. You want to take your kid to the movie. Oh, I, I had to postpone my kids. Like I want to take this kid and this kid to the movies in the fall. I'm like, now you got to make sure they're vaccinated. And that we had to wait three kids on uh, my kid's soccer team weren't vaccinated right away when the fall started. They all got vaccinated. Hey, is that a pressure tactic we want to, uh, you know, have going into the deep future? Maybe not. Maybe not. I still would predict that the vaccine ends up getting added to the list of other practically based vaccines that keep kids healthy and prevent uh, virulent disease to spread. But I don't think that's happening this fall. And I don't think there's the atmosphere or attitude for it anytime soon. I think it's a political loss leader. Um, Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, and I would disagree on that. The mayor of Toronto and I would disagree on that. They've been like cheerleading for five to 11s to all get the shot. Like, like as in, like, if you don't do this, here's what you don't get. And I, I just don't support it. I can't support it. I didn't from the beginning. I, I, I think opinions have evolved on a lot to do with COVID, but I can't change that one. So Jason Kenney described his plan as careful and prudent I want to get your thoughts on it, and I'll give you more details. But first, this is what Jason Kenney sounded like explaining the concept of this to parents. And again, people sympathetic of parents yesterday evening. COVID and the restrictions associated with it have robbed thousands of young children with the simple joys of just being a kid. I was speaking to a young father the other day who told me that his 10-year-old daughter had spent 20% of her life under COVID health restrictions. We cannot remain at a heightened state of emergency forever. We have to begin to heal. And so Alberta will move on, but we'll do so carefully. We'll do so prudently. 
We will do so only if it does not uh, threaten the capacity of our healthcare system. What more can he ask for? What more can you ask for? He's got to be true to his word. And he has said before that he has not been. Either, you know, I, you can make the case, oh, Jason Kenny's this, Jason Kenny's that. This was malicious. This was negligent. Okay, we can play that game with a ton of politicians. Like, we, we can host a game show, get a get a uh, you know man or woman that looks like a game show host, sounds like a game show host, and we can play who got what wrong when. That's the name of the show. We can do that. His quote, we'll never be able to do a full accounting of the extent of the pain and hardship that restrictions have caused. That's got some accuracy to it also. That does. But that's the money line for me. We cannot remain at a heightened state of emergency forever. And some people want you to. This is more of Jason Kenney from yesterday saying we're not going back and doing the lockdown thing. We are moving carefully. We are moving with confidence. While we are working towards an end to restrictive measures and that the damage that they impose, I want to be clear. None of this is an end to COVID-19. New variants will arrive. And we will still see times when cases are higher in the province. We will likely also see times when there is additional pressure on the hospitals. But uh, restrictions, mandates, and those kinds of interventions will not and must not become a permanent feature of our lives. Can't be a go-to. And was it a go-to in this province as of January 3rd? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was from the Ford government. Did either of the opposition parties, oh, these restrictions shouldn't be put in place? No, and they never do. So we get stuck a little bit here. The pressure has to come from you. You got to look in the mirror in the morning and go, what do I want for my family? What do I want for my friends? What do I want for my uh, elderly relatives? What do I want for kids I know if I don't have any myself? We've got we to make this relatable to everybody. So Jason Kenney's moving the ball forward down the field. And uh, we cannot, here's where I'd go. We can't bend ourselves to the will of people predicting the worst. When the worst doesn't happen, they just shrug their shoulders and go, whoopsie, I was wrong. I thought COVID, I thought when schools opened three weeks ago, that the hospitals would tip over and that teachers would go on mass into and, and be hospitalized and put in intensive care. Nah, hasn't happened. Who suffers? Well, we did. Teachers did by not being in classrooms. The vast majority of teachers wanted to be teaching. The vast majority of teachers don't want to be at home. The vast majority of teachers aren't, you know, sitting in their car protesting, thinking they're Aaron Brockovich. They're, that's just not how it works. They feel that ebb and, and flow of responsibility and honor to their profession. There's always going to be some outliers. There's always going to be some outlier doctors that want us to, uh, you know, lock down even harder, just mask up a little more. Hey, maybe maybe we really can eradicate this thing if we just up our mask game. That's yesterday's news, man, and that's and that's a year ago's opinion. I watched a doctor in Calgary named Joe Vipond on yesterday on national television. Um, he had an opportunity to do a few different things. He could have said in Alberta, he's an Alberta-based doctor, and they said, "What do you think of this Jason Kenny move here?" And it was just all criticism. Didn't talk about how hospitalizations and ICUs have dropped. He just talked about uh, a you know, uh, how frustrated he was with the Kenny government. His daughter, apparently, this is a story he told. Maybe it's true. Maybe it is. Uh, its daughter ran down the stairs and said, Daddy, what are we? It's a teenage daughter. Daughter runs down the stairs. What are we going to do? They're dropping the mask mandate. How, how am I going to go to school? Well, uh, I don't want a parent for Joe Vipon. He's sharing the story. It's none of my business what you do in your own household. They're your kids. You got to raise them. I would say that about my kids any day of the week. That said, 
um, I tell my daughter, here's why you're safe. Here's how many uh, kids your age suffer consequences and have bad health come outcomes from COVID-19. I mean, I'm happy to do that. I, I'll send him, I'll send all that stuff to him via fax. I thought that int I'm sure his daughter really appreciated him telling a story about her being anxiety ridden on national television. She's the one that's got to go to school today. He's not, she is, but okay. Um, and Vipon had a bunch of cracks at rep recommending, Hey, you know what we need to do? I don't agree with some of these restrictions, but here's what we can do to counterbalance. Everybody, look at me right now. Let's boost the elderly and vulnerable. Let's keep on this campaign to boot. Let's get a third shot into people who need it the most. Let's ask family doctors about oral treatments for COVID. Let's upgrade to N95 masks if that makes people more comfortable. That guy could have been on 100 minutes last night, and he wouldn't have done any of that. He wouldn't have done any of that because all he wanted to do was scare people. We're going to have those people. We're going to have those doctors. We made a conscious decision on this show. Not to talk to those doctors anymore. And uh, boy, I, I don't know about you as a listener. I breathe easier. I sleep easier. I know we're not out of this. I know the pain we suffer. I go through the ups and downs just like you do. But wow, I, I just, I couldn't, it spoke volumes to me that the concept was my teenage daughter's panicked for her very uh, health and existence. Okay, you got to run your household the way you run your household, Joe Vipond. That's just, you do you. The rest of us have to do us. Um, so let me get to this clip from uh, the MP that uh, really got a lot of attention yesterday. Uh, Joel Lightbound, uh, the liberal MP from Quebec. I want to play you this. B by the way, people equating him with anybody who's run sort of an anti-vax, non-belief campaign in this. Save it. Not accurate. Uh, there's a lot of people painting with broad brushes right now in our in our political landscape and especially about COVID. Uh, but Joel Lightbound said this about the protesters in Ottawa. He said they've got to go. With regards to the occupation of Ottawa's downtown core, it's time it stops. It's time for truckers to leave and let the local population get their neighborhood back and get their quality of life back. Free of fear and free of harassment. No one wants this to escalate, and protesters should now show some goodwill. Like we've seen this Saturday in my hometown of Quebec City, I suggest they relocate somewhere else, somewhere appropriate for the residents and for the city of Ottawa. Now, Lightbound struck a lot of the same tones that we've talked about on this show, that people are starting to talk about um, sort of a balancing act with uh, with risk elements, with risk mitigation, and he talked about that, who he's hearing from, and a lot of those people are parents. We just don't have data to enforce vaccinated kids and their impact on the healthcare system. We just talked about this. Schools have been open three weeks here in Ontario. No uptick in hospitalizations, no uptick in ICUs. We'll have to watch what Alberta's going to do really carefully. Of course we will, but not doing it... Um, Going forward in perpetuity, living in some kind of state of emergency makes no sense. And Lightbound made that clear. I think we must hear these concerns and I think we must respond to them. I've heard from parents worried to see their kids sink into depression and slowly lose their joy of living. I've heard from pediatricians in tears telling me about their young patients' despair, anxiety, isolation, as well as the stunning increase in school dropouts they are observing. I've heard from artists who are on the brink of mental and financial collapse after two years with barely enough work to get by. I've heard from social workers answering suicide hotlines who are overwhelmed by the number of calls they're receiving. Yeah, 
uh, all that is accurate. Is anyone surprised by any of that? Althea Raj uh, in the Toronto Star described this uh, in her first paragraph yesterday. It is the most successful condemnation of the federal government's COVID-19 restrictions and the prime minister's divisive rhetoric to date. Those are her words, not mine. And it came from the Liberals' own side. Uh, love getting our next guest on for Insight. She is uh, uh, Dr. Stephanie Schwinard, Associate Professor of Political Science at Royal Military College. Stephanie, thank you very much for making the time. What Althea writes, is, is that how it landed for you yesterday uh, from Mr. Lightbound? Well, you know, what's interesting about the way that Althea is looking at this, and I think a lot of us who study political science uh, find refreshing about uh, Mr. Lightbound's comments is that we rarely see um, internal caucus dissent in Canada, and that's not necessarily healthy. If you look at, um, you know, uh, the British, for example, and we take a lot of cues in our political system from Westminster, uh, it is absolutely not rare to see uh, a caucus member criticize openly uh, their leader. In Canada, that is uh, something we very rarely see, and, uh, and, and, and it's good uh, to see some of it. It's good to uh, have someone from within government openly say, listen, uh, nobody had the magic recipe here, and uh, no government is beyond reproach, even in a situation of emergency where everyone was sort of walking into this blind, and maybe it's time we reconsider some of the things we did. So, so I thought that uh, Althea was, uh, was dead on with her comments. It's it's remarkable. I mean, he um, then yesterday the the party whip removes him from um, the you know the leadership of the uh, of the Quebec caucus, and people throw up their arms in the air and they say, "How can anyone speak freely?" Again, he was measured. He was calm. He pointed out good things his government had did. He's not siding with the truckers. He's telling them get the hell out of Ottawa. So I think people throw up their arms and they go, "Where's our political discourse going if he can't say what he said?" Yeah, uh, and and I think that's uh, that's unfortunate. Again, it speaks to you know how uh, internal party politics works in, in our country, where uh, it's it's very much a mentality of if you're not with us, you're against us. And you know we've seen um, in at the at the federal level as well as in Ontario, um, caucus members kicked out for far less. Right. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Mr. Uh, Lightbound's uh, place within the Liberal caucus today. We know that there's going to be a caucus meeting where this is going to be on the table. Personally, I really hope that he doesn't get kicked out because, uh, like you said, I thought he was uh, measured in his uh, in, in his tone. Uh, and he reiterated that he had confidence in the government. Um, and it doesn't mean because you don't agree with 100 percent of uh, what you, your, your, your team has done, that you're not a good team player, you know? Absolutely. And we had Nate Erskine-Smith, um, the MP in the Beaches East York, on our show, um, and he he's said... He's notorious uh, for this. Uh, absolutely. Like, he's one of the black sheep uh, within the, the, the Liberal caucus, and he's very outspoken. Obviously, this is, you know, with a caveat that he knows he will probably always be a backbencher because, again, party discipline is so strict in Canada. Uh, but um, I, I, I think, you know, we probably need more people like Nathan Erskine-Smith in that uh, we need people who are able to openly sometimes break rank from uh, the party line when they when the party line goes against their principles. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm sure there's people that say to you in, in private moments, 
surely you don't think that everything at university at, at, at your university where you teach goes uh, as you would do it or someone says what about the media and but those are often private conversations but when you have a public platform and the public elects you which they don't do with you and they don't do with me i think you owe honesty i think you owe objectivity and and some element of transparency to we see it way more in the states don't we where we see democrats saying I don't know that I agree with this. Now, it's changed in the era of Trump. It certainly has. But prior to that, you could talk about Bill Clinton's impeachment if you were a Democrat. You could talk about the Gulf War if you were a Republican. There was a lot more open. Look at Supreme Court nominations. A lot more that happened south of the border, weirdly. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, again, you know, every member of parliament has to walk this, this uh, fine line. And this is true in the liberals, but it's true in every party between representing constituents but also towing the party line. And sometimes there have been, you know, hard choices to make, and it has cost people their jobs when they make uh, the wrong choice. Uh, but I, again, you know, I think uh, if the liberals are smart, they'll know that Mr. Lightbound is really well liked in his, uh, in his own writing, and that if they kick him out, he'll probably defect to the conservatives and he might get reelected again. And that would be a win for Candace Bergen. It sure would, yeah. Stephanie Schwinard, our guest, associate professor of political science at Royal Military College. I'm going to get to Alberta so we can end on Alberta, but it's been it's been strange now. Justin Trudeau's obviously made his way to the House of Commons on Monday, more prominent yesterday, without giving very much detail. But you've seen this, and and you and I have talked about the divi- the you know I wouldn't say the division, but the uh, the differentiation in municipal politics, federal politics, provincial politics. Ottawa's just one of those weird places where it's it's kind of this jurisdictional black hole. It, it, it was sort of wrong place, wrong time, wasn't it, for a lot of this to happen? And and uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions as to how it got to where it got to 12 days in at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, first and foremost, this was a, a municipal problem. Uh, of course, the symbolic of it makes it the, the prime minister's problem. It's right in front of parliament. It's on the territory of the National Capital Commission. But um, policing protests, in Ottawa, and there's been lots of protests yeah. in Ottawa over the years. I've lived there for a decade. It's par for the course when you live in the national capital. Uh, this has always been the responsibility of the Ottawa police to contain them and to make sure that everyone was safe. Uh, now, obviously, 12 days in, uh, people in Centertown, Ottawa, as well as I think all Canadians who are looking at this, probably don't care very much about jurisdiction. They just want it to end, right? And so I, I think this is when. Uh, you have to have um, the federal government showing some leadership, stepping in. Uh, I'm going to say that I think the criticism afforded to uh, the prime minister uh, is unfair compared to the lack of criticism afforded to Doug Ford in this instance, because uh, the province had uh, a much bigger role to, uh, to to step up and to uh, and, and to try to help. I don't think Doug Ford hasn't been in Ottawa so far in the last 20, 12 days. Uh, but but it, it it has become essentially everybody's problem at this point. I got about 90 seconds here, but I want to ask you about what you saw Alberta do last night. Uh, Saskatchewan's done it. Francois Legault, the premier in Quebec, has done it. Do any of these provincial dominoes, uh, Stephanie, do any of them, can any of them claim to have been influenced by the protests in Ottawa? Or are these very much independent, uh, free of, of influence decisions um, that these premiers are starting to make with uh, with restrictions being lifted? 
Everyone is saying that the protest has nothing to do with it, but the timing is very conspicuous. And I think the premiers are making a risky choice in sending the wrong message to people who are who have taken Ottawa hostage right now. I think some of those decisions uh, may be the, the right ones to make, but I would have at least waited until the protest was over so as to not give this, these people a win because it's going to embolden them to do it again. I agree. I, I I think they are. I think both things are, are can be uh, obviously there's so much gray area here and things aren't black and white. But I agree. If you're seeing this in Ottawa, you're seeing, you know, uh, the, the, the cracks in the ceiling and the water start to not just drip through, but seep through with provincial restrictions. It, it may not have been their ultimate goal. Look, we know the organizers. There's a lot of nefarious people with nefarious um, discredited opinions among the organizers. But that sure, you and I know, that sure isn't everybody that went to Ottawa the last two weekends or even people protesting in other cities. Indeed. Yeah, no. Uh, and, and it's important not to paint everyone with the same brush stroke there. But it, the fact remains that the core of the organizers are people who at the end of the day had uh, more of a will to disturb and uh, and distress uh, people in Ottawa than to uh, get a mandate, uh, a vaccine mandate message across or uh, people who even cared about truckers. There were people in there that uh, had, you know, this uh, influence. But I, I, I feel like um, the core of our organizers latched on to um, a group of Canadians um, tiredness with uh, with uh, the the pandemic and the fact that the, that so many premiers have responded in this particular time frame, I think is very risky. Dr. Stephanie Schwienard bringing it this morning for us, associate professor of political science at Royal Military College. Love your insight. Enjoy our conversations. Have a great day today. Likewise. Have a good one, Greg. Huge student populations. Like, it's unbelievable when you think, you know, going to university and there's just thousands of people around. For example, Queens has 29,000. Ryerson's got 39,000. University of Toronto, 88,000 undergrad students. But this was all pre-COVID. Uh, but a ton of university students have not been able to get back to normal. Made sense, right? Made sense in spring of 2020, fall of 2020. But are we behind the game a little bit? Our next guest uh, is the mother of one university graduate, two kids in undergrad right now, and she's also the CEO of uh, Better Business Bureau. And as I mentioned earlier when we tried to put her on, that sounds like an important title. That's way better than radio host. She is uh, Jen Matthews. You and I have known each other a long time. That's a, that's, a, that's a much better business card than anything I could put out. It just is. Yeah, uh, it is, Greg. Uh, I just have to say that. So good morning to you. Tell me what you, you know, you, you, you become an empty nester, you get kids out to university and most parents think I won, they made it, they got there, but you're playing like amateur slash professional psychologist with, with all the ups and downs and the stops and starts of kids in university, aren't you? It is. It's been quite a journey. So when COVID started, I had three or two in university. One came home and finished his thesis from the couch. Uh, one did second year science from the kitchen table. And now uh, one's graduated. I have one in fourth year science and one in first year science at two different universities. And it's quite an experience. Um, obviously, you've mentioned it, the social things that they're missing. But um, the unpredictability and the inconsistency in some cases. So whether a prof just gives you a textbook and says, read this and write three exams with no in-person instruction, or there are in-person uh, online instructions, or things change, small classes can go back, but large classes can't. It's, it, there are a lot of inconsistencies, and that's what my kids feel frustrated with. 
And I think about subjects that are made, um, you know, really a, a template for being online. And it's probably a lot more of what you took in school and what I took in school. Things like arts, liberal arts, political science, history, science, um, kinesiology, math. Like that strikes me as really, really difficult to do through a computer screen. It is. Uh, and both of my daughters are in science one at Waterloo, one at Trent. And uh the uh, daughter in Trent has gone back to in-person learning. The daughter at Waterloo, her classes, the ones that are supposed to be in-person are too big at the 300 level mark. They won't go back until the end of February. Um, and, they, you know, I, I hear heard her say, I had to go to the uh, grocery store to buy a fish to dissect at home. I mean, those are just things that you don't think about when you're in university science. And it's, it's, uh, it's a different learning experience. And they're frustrated that they're paying the same, if not more. But they are very aware or they have the feeling that in some cases, and not all, because I'm, I'm not painting professors with the same brush, uh, they're not getting the value that they feel they should have or the education that they think they deserve. They have every right to feel that way. Jen Matthews, our guest on Toronto Today, she's the CEO of Better Business Bureau in uh, Western Ontario, uh, based in London, Ontario. Um, when, when all this started, I know some people were starting university in fall of 2020, Jen, and they said, well, um, my kid might take a gap year, but you can maybe do that for a year. And I think there's parents even now that say my kid's coming out of say OAC or grade 12 in Ontario and, and we're going to wait this out, but you can't wait three years because there's not even, you can't travel. There's not full-time work. There's some people do eventually pick their education back up. But um, but asking people to do it over, a, it's not sustainable over this amount of time. And the other interesting thing is my daughter, who started first year at Trent in September, uh, come December during exams, said, Mom, I'm about to go write my first exam in almost half years because of the way that high school finished. Now kids are, you know, they've, they've missed that practice of preparing for an in-person exam, the studying, the, you know, all those things. So. Uh, think about those kids that did sort of transition. They've had two very odd years and they're going into first year missing a few key pieces of how to navigate their education. We just heard from a lot of parents who talked about their kids' confidence. Um, uh, my friend Mike Drolet, who's a reporter, was on our uh, our segment at 735 Chatterbox and he, and he said he has to remind his daughter, you're safe out. You don't need to wear a mask in the car with me. University students and college students, we've all been there, um, have a lot more of a <laughs> recklessness, a cavalier sense. That's where you sort of you sort of get your yayas out to quote a Rolling Stones song. How are your kids handling that? How how is their social circle of friends handling it? Is it very much let it rip, or are they really, you know, has some of their their um, you know, their consciousness and their and their bravery been a little bit damaged by who knows media coverage, just the practicality of all this? How how have they viewed it? So I, I have to say that um, my two daughters are uh, quite cautious in what they do. But what I did notice sort of before Christmas, we were out doing some Christmas shopping. And about 20 minutes into being in the mall, they both looked around and said, this doesn't feel comfortable. We just need to get out. And so that's not, I, mean, I don't, I don't want to stereotype, you know, young adult girls, but for them to go like 20 minutes into a mall, we're done. We don't want to be here. Um, but they've been very careful. They limited their friends to probably two or three each the entire time. So, um, and that's probably just from me do the same thing. Uh, but they're beginning to come back and go, okay, we need to see some people. We, we miss talking to live people. <laughs> I got, I got about 45 seconds. What are you hopeful for, for the fall for them? I mean, can you possibly, no one wants to 
go too high with expectations and then feel crushed. We've been through a lot of that. What are they hoping? What are you hoping as a parent for September? I'm hoping that all of their classes that are offered in in person, because some of them are just always online, but uh, that they can go back, that they can experience that being in a lecture hall and listening. I, I think what we're also missing in this educational experience is hearing somebody else ask the question that maybe you're not comfortable asking and learning from discourse that's happening inside a lecture hall. I really hope that they are exposed to that and uh, that they have a more normal learning experience at university. I hope so too. Um, that's, that's massive. By the way, you and I knew each other in high school. Do you have any idea how many high school exams I wanted to not write and, and be canceled? It's in the I double digits. Next to you. I thought about pulling the fire alarm a few times on him, but I'm like, they're, they, they're going to know it's me. They're going to be like, it's likely he's one of the top five candidates in the school <laughs> to have not wanted to write this physics exam with Mr. Roy. It's not going to, it's, it's not a good thing. I loved having you on. Thanks very much. Stay safe. And, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Greg. Jen Matthews, uh, CEO of Better Business Bureau. Always enjoy our next guest uh, perspectives. Uh, she is pharmacologist Sabina Vora Miller. It's great to have you on. Um, let me get to the uh, kind of the news of the day. I know we're going to talk about um, boosters and, and efficacy, but rapid tests getting released by the province today. We know what a what a race it was, if you will, in December, especially going into Christmas gatherings. People wanted to. We were shaving down our gatherings, shaving down New Year's Eve, but people still want to see other people's faces. Um, this is a good thing that at grocery stores all over the province, uh, people can get tests that haven't been as accessible these last few weeks. I know. I am so happy to hear this news. I mean, I think you heard me speak even last year in December when we were initially rolling out the rapid test. You know, I, I, I wasn't exactly thrilled with the fact that these tests were not being distributed in an accessible and equitable way. And in fact, you know, probably... Um, in, in a fairly unsafe way as well, having people congregate indoors for long periods of time just to grab a rapid test. But this is fantastic. This is what we needed to have done from the very beginning. Um, and I'm really happy to see that Ontario is doing this. Um, Dr. Zane Chagel has been on a ton and he's talked about um, the testing requirements for international travel. Um, I'm making my first flight this weekend. So on a Saturday flight, uh, I've got to go get a test on Friday. I understand within 24 hours or so. Um, what is that? Is the juice worth the squeeze there? I, I don't want to take a test away from somebody that's doing, I wouldn't say it's not important to make sure that I'm not contagious getting on a plane, but I am conscious of the fact that there are people maybe who either are, are unvaccinated or in a more vulnerable circumstance. And I think we've all felt that way in the last six, seven weeks thinking we want, we want to know our, our kids aren't positive. If they get a cough or a cold going back to school, we want to know our elderly uh, are, are more confident going places. Um, how do you how do you view the travel regulations for testing here right now? I mean, I think with the travel regulations, I feel, you know, I'm not sure exactly how much benefit we get, you know, what bang for a buck we're really getting from these. Um, to be absolutely honest, I mean, I think you do PCR tests, you know, many countries um, want it within two to three days of travel as well. But we all know that there are flaws of PCR testing and that you could possibly test negative three days before you leave for your trip. But in that in between that time, you test positive. Um, and the second thing also is that you know, Omicron's everywhere. It is really, truly mm -hmm. everywhere. So it's not as though we're going from one place that has very limited Omicron to another place that has a lot of Omicron, right? And I think that that 
balance needs to be struck as well. I mean, if you if 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 there's not a huge difference in Omicron cases between the countries that you're traveling between, then what's the point of that test? You know, I mean, the idea yeah. is to stop it at the border, but if it's already there, what exactly are you stopping, right? And so, uh, you know, I, I do think we should reconsider some of these at some point, um, just because I'm not sure if they actually, if, if there's utility in them. Yeah, I agree with you. Sabina Vora-Miller is our guest, 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. Um, I know this has driven you crazy. It's kind of driven me crazy as well. This You hear all the time from people at, at vaccination clinics. We were hearing it in the spring and summer who somehow um, preferred Pfizer over Moderna. And I know it's um, it, it made its way around in a CBC story. I don't mention mind mentioning him because I think he's been great. Uh, Dr. Brian Goldman hosts a CBC podcast called The Dose, and and he's had many guests on who've documented this, and it drives... I I, I don't get it. The, the, the data just does not bear this out, does it? That both mRNA vaccines, um, in essence, offer incredibly similar protection, going one dose to two and two doses to three. Well, in fact, actually, Moderna probably has a slight edge over Pfizer, to be honest. If you actually look at all of the vaccine efficacy data, you see slightly better, um, you know, uh, efficacy with Moderna. And I think for some reason, we've had a brand issue with Moderna from the beginning. I mean, it really goes back to the days when we were first vaccinating. It was, we had a lot of Pfizer. Moderna was a little delayed. And we also saved Moderna for long-term care homes and not for the general population. And so people didn't hear much about Moderna. But if you actually go to our, our neighbors, the U.S., where Moderna actually had some fantastic people, you know, rallying behind it, like Dolly Parton, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, and people actually in the U.S. preferred Moderna over Pfizer, right? And so it was really interesting to see the differences here. And, and absolutely, even with all of the outreach we've done with the South Asian community, that was the one thing we heard all the time. You know, people wanted Pfizer and they didn't want Moderna. And um, you know, and, and and truly for me, it was the opposite. When I went to get my booster, I was really hoping for Moderna, but they had a Pfizer vial open and I'm like, damn it, you know. Um, <laughs> so if you actually look at the data, Moderna probably has a slight edge over it, but for sure, they're both, you know, very, very effective vaccines. Um, they're equally effective if, and Moderna is probably, probably slightly more than that. And I don't, I don't know why we have this brand issue with Moderna here. I want to get to uh, a few things that some of the other provinces are doing and, and see if you think we're either headed in that direction or, or see if you think it's too soon, just right, um, too late. But I want to ask you about um, about boosting, um, you know, vulnerable adults, older people. I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that people have been able to vaccinate their kids. Absolutely thrilled. And they've been able to do it for going on nine, ten weeks now. But I had Joe Cressy on the show on on Monday, who's just been amazing being out there and donating his time, energy, having these conversations, chipping away at the unvaccinated, if you will. And and he kind of agreed that maybe we need a little bit of a pivot in campaign strategy to get it back to these seniors who somehow think, well, I had my two shots. I'm OK. Oh, they only told me I the third is vital. I, I, I don't think we can stress this enough. The third shot is incredibly important. And honestly, I could talk about this all day long just because of how important it is. And absolutely, we are trailing behind on third doses across Canada. In fact, we're not doing so great with it. And I think people have realized, you know, people have thought that, well, I was supposed to get only two doses and I've got my two doses. And what's the point of the third if it doesn't work? Um, but both those, uh, you know, points are, in, in fact, not exactly true. I, you know, first of all, 
majority of vaccines are three-dose vaccines. If you look at the vaccinations that we get um, as children, um, you know, and even if you had to get them, if you didn't get them in childhood and you had to get them in adulthood, they would be three-dose vaccines, right? And so getting three doses of a vaccine is not, in fact, atypical at all. But second of all, we have such fantastic data coming that shows us um, that the booster doses are so effective. I mean, the CDC had uh, data a couple of weeks ago that showed that even for actual symptomatic infections, I'm not even talking about severe illness, but just symptomatic infections, there's a five-fold decrease in infections once you get a booster. And the same data we're seeing here in Ontario, you know, we have some fantastic data coming out um, from Ontario that showed that the symptomatic um, efficacy against symptomatic infection is actually 61% after a booster. It's basically down to 0% with just two doses, but it shoots back up to 61% after you get a booster. And this is just basic symptomatic infection. But when you actually go into the data and you look at how effective it is in preventing hospitalizations and severe illness and death. I mean, it's 95% after a booster. That's phenomenal, right? Um, So absolutely, I think those who are, you know, especially, I mean, we're seeing more and more data saying that, you know, those who are older, age is a huge predictor of, um, you know, severe illness. And people who have um, comorbidities, specific comorbidities, especially put them at higher risk. These are the populations we should be focusing on and making sure that they are fully boosted. It's so and I'm so glad you put it that way, because I also think it's very it's very apolitical, like like and and I wish I wish there was zero politics involved in this. I'm not that I'm not that naive to think that that's possible. But at the same time, like I'm seeing politicians talk about, you know, mandates for for university students. It's such a hot button issue in, in the states. And I get it with parents saying my my kids had two shots. They've recovered from um from covid. You're going to make my kid have a third, a healthy 20 or, and, and Sabina, those are some parents will, and some parents won't. And, and I just think the most obvious pivot is that there's going to be way more impact on the healthcare system. If we've got 70 year olds walking around, going back to restaurants and ball games and whatnot, if they only have two shots, it's just obvious. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the mandate discussion is a really nuanced discussion and it's just turned so polarized that we can't really have a proper discussion on it. But if you actually think about, you know, how things have changed with Omicron, really mandates are protecting those who are unvaccinated, right? That's really what they're doing. Um, You know, initially when mandates were first put into place, the, the rationale was the opposite, where you're trying to protect people who are vaccinated, you're giving back you know, some of the things that they weren't able to do over the last two years. But now, to be honest, if you look at the reason why we should have mandates, it is to protect the unvaccinated and not the opposite. Um, So I think that, you know, I think these are very, very nuanced discussions that we have to see. Where do we actually have benefit in putting these mandates in? And where do we actually not get that incremental benefit and where it's not, you know, worth our, our time and efforts at all? I mean, I'll be honest, you know, there are a couple of different things where if I had to choose where to put energy, that would not be where I would want to put in it, you know, my, my energy and my focus on. And, and like you said, I think boosting the vulnerable population is probably where I would spend my effort too. So um, you saw, you saw what many of the other provinces did yesterday, Quebec, Alberta, Saskatchewan. Um, I, I want to give you lots of room to stretch out. I'll, I'll just open by saying, I think the vaccine is, Vaccine is more effective than masks. N95 masks are a big upgrade from cloth masks. We've talked about that. And the concept of one-way masking is is more of a conversation. I also, this is me, I think if we keep mask mandates for too long, that sort of impedes 
the get vaccinated message. I worry there's people that think they are equal in terms of protection. And I think people are misunderstanding um, the, the perception of risk there. So, you know, it's a conversation there with parents and kids and masks. And where do you stand on it right now? You know, I think for me, I've always seen vaccines as one of the tools in our toolbox. I, I personally, I really, truly believe in that, you know, the Swiss cheese model where you have several layers of protection. Um, and I mm -hmm. think vaccines are, as you know, I think that they're exceptionally important. But at the same time, you know, I do feel that we have other things in our toolbox that we need to keep on. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'll be honest, I have a lot of thoughts about what's going on in other provinces. And I think that some of these decisions are happening because, um, you know, people have decided that we've now hit the peak. And so we're on the down on the down wave. And so it's OK to remove all these mitigation strategies. But I mean, it's not as though cases are going to automatically decline once you take once you lift all of these um, these mitigation strategies, you know, so I, I, I you know, the cases peak and decline because of mitigation strategies. The second you take them out, there is no guarantee that your peaks are going to keep going up. Um, and I also do think that, um, you know, we're at a point where the reason why we do some of our mitigation strategies really is for hospital capacity um, because we don't have that capacity. But at the flip side, if you think about it, countries that do have a lot of hospital capacity, say the U.S., for instance, mm -hmm. they've had um, more of a leeway to to allow cases to rise, you know, um, much higher than we have. And that comes with the cost. And the cost is nearly one million people dying. And if you look at it per capita as well, um, U.S. has one of the highest per capita death rates due to COVID. I mean, if you think about it, that's the entire population of San Francisco that has died in the last two years due to COVID. It's not insignificant, right? Um, and so coming back to where we are yeah. right now, I do think we need to have a de-implementation strategy. Clear cutoff. Okay, we get to this point. We get rid of this um, in, you know, very, very clearly um, laid out, science-driven de-implementation strategies. That's important. But doing it without, you know, having these arbitrary days. Okay, on Feb first or. Sorry, I know, I know. There's no, there's no metrics so behind it. You're right. There's no metrics behind it, and yeah. metrics and data, like. Metrics and data are a way to earn trust. Like if your doctor said, exactly. this is this is where I need your blood pressure to be, your cholesterol level. This is what I want your weight to be. We'd go, OK, those are metrics and I will try and achieve those metrics. But if it's too vague, um, it, it ends up either creating distrust or, or apathy towards it. That's exactly it. And there's only so much people can do with, you know, things going back and forth and flip flopping constantly. I think, you know, the number of times that we, you know, remove medication strategies and, and then suddenly put them back on. I mean, I, I get whiplash thinking about it. Right. And so <laughs> and so I just it's just and that's the part that really, really um, frustrates me because I wish we could actually have a committee that could sit down and actually look at these and do it in a way that it's very evidence driven because we do need a de-implementation strategy. There's no doubt about that. Um, and the second thing also, and I have to say this and, 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 you know, please, please don't hate me for saying this, but I think we're also banking on the fact that we won't have any new variants pop up and that's not a guarantee at all. Right. Well, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. I think I think we hope they're uh, they're less severe. Um, right. I, I know people bristle at the word mild and I get it. There's nothing mild for an unvaccinated person or a vulnerable person who's got an Omicron with you 100 percent there. But I think that has to be the hope going forward. But but there are there are some things like limiting long term care visits and uh, again, 
making kids wear masks, five-year-olds wear masks 35 hours a week. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. If, if that is to happen, we've got to have the public trust to go, all right, we need to reverse some of these things. And I worry mm-hmm. those exactly, as you point out, data-driven. Let's base it on metrics. Let's not just go pick an arbitrary date because we don't have a clue. We haven't been able to predict so much of the last six months, right? Exactly that, and, and, and that you know you've nailed it. That's exactly it, and so that's that's the pro- that's the that's really where I struggle with a lot. But I mean, hopefully Ontario takes a more evidence-driven way of, of um, our, you know ID implementation as well. We'll see where it goes. Hey, we'll talk next Wednesday. Thanks for the time today. You're awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. try to catch up with the uh, best uh, pitcher Oscar nominees. I, I'm not even all caught up from last year. And you know why? They were so depressing without a G at the end of that word. Uh, the father was rough. Nomadland was rough. I thought the trial of the Chicago 7 was amazing. Sound of Metal was a tough watch. Drummer loses his hearing. Great Riz Ahmed. Oh, my gosh. So there was a lot of rough movies. Are they better and more uplifting this time around? Well, I think it's a reasonable question, and why don't we ask that uh, to our next guest? He's Globe and Mail film editor Barry Hertz. Let's talk about these nominations. Let's hit some of the stars up uh, and make it a little star-studded segment. But am I do I have that right? I think we're a little more uplifting with Hollywood films for the 2022 Oscars than the year before, Barry. Hollywood wasn't really releasing their big kind of splashy titles they were holding on to them because of the movie going situation in the United States. Um, so that's kind of just what was available on the market. A lot of stuff was held back um, this year, not as much. So the case, and we have kind of these slightly more all audience friendly titles um, that are really kind of feel goody um, King Richard with Will Smith, um, you know, and the big blockbuster spectacleness of Dune, um, so there is a bit more of a lighter sense, um, not that I would call Dune light at all, but, you know, it is a bit more audience friendly. It is a bit more, this isn't the dark, small, depressing stuff that you might've been, um, concerned about last year. Barry Hertz is the film editor for the Globe and Mail, uh, and the deputy arts editor as well. Um, and, uh, he's joining us in Toronto today on 640 Toronto. You mentioned doing a couple of times there. Um, I'm of a generation that, you know, went to see this movie when I was like, 10, 11. Uh, and uh, it, it stunk back in 1984. There were some big, big names in this movie. Uh, like you, you turn around and you see an eventual, you know, future acting superstar. And at the same time, it was a muddled mess. I, I didn't feel expectations were remarkably high two weeks before when you're starting to see promos and trailers and it's getting talked about what, uh, what Denny Villeneuve did. Um, I don't know that people saw a bunch of Academy Awards nominations um, getting discussed. So it, it was well critically received. And at the same time, when people heard they're remaking what? Like that was sort of the the atmosphere around the around the movie in advance, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, on the other hand, like this was something that there's a generational divide too. a lot of people who are were excited for this new Dune weren't really. Well, they may have been like somewhat aware of the of David Lynch's previous version. They certainly weren't 
you know, around to see it in theaters at the time. You know, you benefited here from a much younger cast, Zendaya, Timothy Chalamet, who are very popular um, with the younger demographic, especially on social media. Um, so you drive that excitement there. And then you just see that it's this big, huge production that there's a lot of money being put toward it. Um, there's kind of a very eventization of it in which you have to see it on the big screen. You have to see it ideally on the biggest screen, go to an IMAX and see it. So you get some excitement there. Um, Oscar possibilities. I think it's more of a goodwill thing. It was like, here's mm-hmm. a big movie that's coming out that that is very reasonably um, artistically ambitious um, that a studio is kind of putting a lot of energy behind. And it did well, or it did well enough, certainly well enough to justify a sequel, certainly well enough in kind of our current pandemic era box office expectations, which are very much tampered down. Um, so this is kind of a reward for that, a, a reward for creating something that's big, and exciting and not based on superheroes that has a legitimate artistic force behind it in Denis Villeneuve that has a cast that appeals across generations. Let's give it a bunch of nominations and and reward it that way. I can't see it winning certainly best picture or best adapted screenplay, perhaps a lot of the technical awards, the below the line stuff, the costume Mm -hmm. design, um, you know, visual effects, the score, it, it might succeed there, but really the nominations for Dune here are the win. Barry Hertz from the Globe and Mail is with us on Toronto today. Uh, the Power of the Dog, more people to me of, of all the movies. Um, uh, certainly Don't Look Up had had its uh, a real window of time for about three weeks, especially when it was released on Netflix. And I want to talk about that in a sec. But The Power of the Dog by Jane Campion is probably the movie more people have talked to me about than I haven't seen it yet in the last three weeks. And for Jane Campion, so strange. She's the re- director of The Piano. Yeah, that's right. The Piano, which is like 20 nine years old now as a movie. Um, and uh, and she's been away from directing movies for a long time. So this is not a director, is it, Barry, that's been cranking them out, that's been really consistent on the scene. It's uh, it's an odd film, but this one has grabbed people. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, for Jane Campion's case, you know, uh, she makes history here as being the only woman who's ever been nominated twice um, for best director. That's never happened before. So, I mean, that you can, you know, there's a whole story and narrative behind that. Um, and of course, you know, as we know, like certain, you know, directors are, are very marginalized within the industry and, and don't get the opportunity to take on the films that they want to make. Um, that said, she wasn't exactly sitting around doing nothing. You know, mm-hmm. she did produ- she did direct and mastermind the uh, Top of the Lake miniseries for two seasons. Um, which was very successful. Um, and, you know, this, you know, she's also a director um, reading profiles and, and interviews with her. She takes her time and she does things exactly the way she wanted to. And she was waiting for the opportunity to do that. And Netflix afforded her the opportunity to do that this time around. Um, whether, you know, it's hit a chord general audience wise, I, you know, it's hard to say, especially with it being on Netflix and, you know, it's not given the traditional box office metrics that we look at to see, oh, this is a hit. This is not a hit. But then again, the accessibility factor is through the roof because it's on Netflix. Anybody who saw the nominations today and is curious can go home, mm-hmm. watch it immediately, discover it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the star power in the in the actors categories, they're, they're all 10 really familiar names. It, it's hard to guess which is the least familiar of the 10 names some of that is is whether it's generational or not but let, let's start with the uh the actress category and uh and the women jessica chastain olivia coleman penelope cruz 
uh, who you touched on a lot in, in your column on the globe, Nicole Kidman, a sixth nomination for her and Kristen Stewart um, in the Diana movie, uh, uh, Spencer. It's um, again, it's, it's five actresses that everybody knows nobody's obscure. And there's a couple, obviously massive names that have been there, done that when it comes to getting nominated. Yeah. It's, I think the best actress list this year is really fascinating. There are some surprises there. There are some surprise exclusions, I was really happy to see Penelope Cruz get on there. She didn't have as much uh, heat, so to speak, coming in from the awards race. She was kind of considered everyone's favorite. I really hope they nominate her, but I'm pretty sure they won't um, (laughs) person. And so that was a nice surprise. Kristen Stewart, on the other hand, was somebody who was tipped very early on in the awards race on the film festival circuit this past fall as being kind of a shoe in. Uh, and then people actually started to see Spencer and the critical reaction kind of uh, wobbled a bit. And then she was left off of a lot of the Guild Awards and people were basically proclaiming her dead in the water before the nominations. So you have her coming in, um, which is very surprising. And then you have um, somebody who a lot of people thought would make the cut, Lady Gaga for House of Gucci, mm-hmm. um, getting denied. Um, so and then, of course, you have the established actresses like Nicole Kimmon, who's you know, uh, here for the sixth time. And I think you have who is probably the front runner, Olivia Coleman, um, who's just been kind of getting raves up and down the board. Um, and even though she has won the Oscar not too recently, I mean, not too long ago um, for the favorite, I, I feel that she has the best shot this time around. At least I just saw that one. Uh, that's a, the Maggie Gyllenhaal right behind the, the camera and uh, and doing the screenplay for The Lost Daughter. That's getting that's getting late push, if you will. Best actor um, with Javier Bardem, Benedict Cumberbatch, Andrew Garfield, Will Smith and Denzel Washington. This feels a lot of people have said Will Smith and King Richard. This is sort of the the setup movie to make sure that somebody finally gets their Oscar. We we've referenced um, Leonardo DiCaprio and The Revenant uh, being that way. I think that was supposed to be. I'm a massive Michael Keaton fan. That was supposed to be what Birdman was. I know he won the BAFTA for and a couple other uh, Screen Guild awards, uh, but didn't end up winning the Oscar. Um, by design, does this look like an Oscar? winning designed role for Will Smith. A lot of eyes are on whether he wins it or not, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I'm sure he hopes so. Um, And if it were any other year or rather if Benedict Cumberbatch wasn't also going up against (laughs) him, I would say he had it in the bag, but Benedict seems from the moment the power of the dog has premiered on the film festival circuit, he has been like the lock of everyone Um, And I just feel there's too much heat behind him right now um, that Will Smith might be eclipsed. Now, that said, you know, as we were talking, The Power of the Dog is not an all audience kind of friendly movie. It it is a challenging movie. It it, it appeals to very certain sensibilities, whereas King Richard is the popular take, um, is the kind of charming, um, charismatic energy to burn role um, that people want to see Will Smith do and that he does so well. So there could be an upset um, close to it. Right now, I'm going to give the edge to Benedict. Mm. Barry Hurst is our guest from the Globe and Mail. Um, you describe it, um, and I think rightly so, as still the movie industry has um, some, a, a crisis happening right now. And I think that's true. And I think there was obviously a shift in the sands before the pandemic. But the pandemic has just flooded the zone with keeping us at home, keeping us out of theaters. Uh, it's pushed streaming services up. 
a lot of the big stars that never would consider being in a TV series um, 10 years ago. It's usually you do you do the George Clooney thing, right? You do a bunch, you do TV, you get discovered, you jump to movies. We're seeing a seismic shift sometimes back the other way that movie stars want to be in television shows. Um, it, 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 like there's no there's no knowing where it all goes a couple years from now. But until we all until there's a semblance of a of a normalcy again with a, and the frequency of all of us going to theaters on a Friday and Saturday night on on dates and taking kids, um, it's just hard to know where it's all going, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, we're in this very strange in between time. Um, you know, that said, you know, pre March 2020, um, you know, streamers were on the ascent regardless. Um, and so you can look at this and just say that the theater closure and everything that kind of came with that um, has accelerated trends that were already happening. Um, how do theaters bounce back? How does movie going bounce back? Does Hollywood get into the bed um, with streamers further? I don't know. It's a very complicated time. It's only it's also kind of the only time in any industry's history where you have uh, theaters dealing with suppliers. Um, so studios, distributors, mm -hmm. who are also now their competitors. Um, you know, Disney is a supplier to theater and it has its own streaming service. Um, Netflix is, is the same thing on, to a lesser degree. Um, so what do you do? Um, what's the way forward? I have no idea. But right now you cannot say that streaming is a threat to the movie industry. Streaming is part and parcel of the movie industry what is kind of the reality of what we go out to see versus what we see at home? And how does that affect our definition of filmed entertainment? I don't know. These are huge questions that we might have a little kind of a sliver of an answer once these Oscars um, happen. Um, but I'm sure the rest of the year is going to be just as tumultuous as the past two. Very hurts our guest. Uh, well, you know, from one, uh, you know, we're trying to keep our industries thriving, said the radio guy to the newspaper guy. So uh, it's, <laughs> it's good for us to have these discussions. Uh, thank you very much for making the time for our audience and uh, really enjoyed your recap. And uh, and maybe we'll talk uh, after these awards get given out in uh, in late March. I really appreciate you coming on. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We absolutely appreciate it. Feel free to share this podcast with a friend. Subscribe, rate us, and we'll see you tomorrow for a live show on Thursday between 5.30 and 9 a.m. Have a great day.